you know, we're doing the series on heaven. We're looking at um, what the Bible teaches about heaven. And I've said to you, the, the reason for doing that is, is twofold, really. It's, it's to help us to understand clearly what our theology, but at the same time, it's to help us to live well now. And uh, that is very, very important, that we live well, that we, we look at uh, death with fresh eyes, knowing what lies ahead. And so this morning, I'd like to continue exploring a big idea. And I said last time that we wanted to explore some of the big ideas that the Bible teaches about heaven before we start addressing some of the little questions that people have and that we all have about heaven. And the first thing that I said a couple of weeks ago was that the most important thing the Bible teaches about heaven is that it's a promise for us. Uh, God promises heaven to you and I as believers. It's an eternal promise that was rooted in the first promise that Abraham received from the Lord, that through his seed, through his offspring, every nation on the earth would be blessed. So that's the, uh, the root of this promise. And the covenant, what made that promise eternally secure, just as when Abraham uh, was promised those things by God, there was a covenant that was cut when two animals were killed. And uh, Jesus the, says the the presence of God walked between those pieces. Um, that was the sign of the covenant, making the promises eternally secure. The sign of the covenant for us, that heaven is secure for us, is the empty tomb. It's what Jesus did by being raised from the dead. And He's alive. And I tried to major on that uh, the, the last time I preached. This promise of heaven is eternally secure for everyone who believes by faith. And everything about heaven hinges on the eternal promise that uh, was, was bought for us in the resurrection of Jesus. And so I'm going to look a little bit more at the resurrection of Jesus today and then explore out of that a second idea that follows on from the resurrection. And um, I would encourage you to listen to the podcasts if you have missed any of these messages just to get the context. But the question I'd like to um, look at this morning is, what will our bodies be like in heaven? What will our bodies be like in heaven? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Um, if you've ever seen a loved one getting old and frail, or someone uh, suffering that their body dies in terms of sickness, uh, whether old age or sickness withers someone's body, have you ever thought what body they will have in heaven? Um, if you are... A person who likes to express yourself through creative dance, and you've seen, for example, you've seen your body diminish your ability to dance, for example. Or if you're a painter and your eyes have got old with age and you can't paint so well anymore. Um, have you ever thought what body you're going to have in heaven one day? On a personal note, I hope that uh, I will have a beautiful hair, head of hair in heaven. Don't know. We'll see. <laughs> but the answer to some of these questions is uh, really depends very much on what you think heaven will be like. And as I said to you last time, that very much t in turn depends on what you think of the resurrection. Remember I said everything hinges on the resurrection. And I do agree with C.S. Lewis who said that all these thoughts that we have about heaven are simply our best imaginings. And if these imaginings are not true, then something much better is. And so where, where I'd like to start in terms of this thinking with you this morning is really to perhaps come at it from a different angle and to talk about the reality of grief in our lives. You see, because when you believe in the resurrection, when you believe in the certainty of what lies ahead, it doesn't mean automatically that everything on earth 
becomes blissfully good and blissfully uh, unfree of pain. And all of us know grief to some measure. And as long as we are alive on this earth, grief will touch us to a measure with its chilly fingers. And I don't think any one of us can fully understand the connection that a loved one has to our families until that person is gone. And uh, that's just the way it is. And, and certainly for me, in terms of my journey, uh, I, I said goodbye to my mom seven years ago now. And it has taken a long time. And as I've chatted with Helen, I've, I've said to her, in fact, this week in Dresden, I said to her, I'm amazed how many things now that I look back on my life, some of the stuff that's happened to me in the last seven years, and really what I was thinking, what I was feeling was grief. And I didn't really know it was, but it was. And grief can affect all of us in so many different ways. And it does take a long time to go through the process of grieving and uh, coming to terms with the loss of someone that you have held very, very dear. And um, this morning, we've had the most amazing privilege of celebrating with Tim and Beck, uh, with um, uh, the Williamses, with their little one, Jared and Becky. And at the same time, we grieve with Tim and Becky, who have had to say goodbye to Esther. And this, this is part of the joy of a church family. You get to celebrate every good thing, and you stand with people that are going through difficult things. So we celebrate life and the birth of new life, and at the same time, we grieve and we say goodbye to someone that has been very dear to someone else in the church. And this is the, the, the privilege we have as believers. We mourn with those who mourn, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And sometimes those things go on at exactly the same time in your life. And I love what Tolkien said. He said, I will say, do not weep. I will not say, do not weep, for not all tears are an evil. Isn't that beautiful? I will not say, do not weep, for not all tears are an evil. There's a time to weep with those that are weeping, and there's a time to rejoice with those that are rejoicing. I love, uh, as you know, I love C.S. Lewis, and he wrote very openly about the grief of losing his own wife, Joy Davidson, who he married late in life, and if you've seen that movie Shadowlands, uh, has anyone seen that movie? Recommend you see that movie. It's a great movie about their relationship, and he wrote a book out of this experience called A Grief Observed, and perhaps if you are going through some of these things yourself, you might want to read that book. It's very, very helpful. And what he said, in, in, and I think what is most helpful out of this book, is that he showed the importance of us admitting to ourselves that grief is real and it really does touch our lives. And he says in this book, he says, even shaving became for him such, became too much for, for him to even shave in the morning because he was thinking, well, what does it matter? I mean, joy is gone. I don't see her face anymore. What does it matter whether I shave or not? He kind of came to this, this place. And even though he was... Um, Someone who held unswervingly to his faith, he held unswervingly to his belief in the resurrection. He writes honestly that sometimes even his faith didn't seem to offer him much help. It, se it seemed that he had entered, he describes it as this thick, chilly fog where everything was just clouded and fogged over and he couldn't see and his heart was kind of being pulled this way and that and he, he just didn't know how to find his way through this dark fog that had descended upon his life. And he writes, um, he writes this. He says, uh, he's talking of God. He says, go to him when your need is desperate and when all the other help is in vain. And what do you find? 
a door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. He's trying to say, even in the midst of his grief, he was trying to find God, and he, didn't even, he wasn't even able to find God. And it's at those times when you're in this process where you're trying to find your way, everything around you just seems like foggy and cloudy, and you can't find your way, that even the best meaning words of comfort seem simplistic and meaningless, and God seems to be distant, God's to be silent. But the joy of uh, this book is that in the end, Lewis finds that the fog gradually begins to lift and his life began to open and he could start seeing and make sense of all that was going on around him. And he knew that the pain would always be there to a measure. And that's what I found is that grief stays with you, but it just doesn't hurt so much. You get over it, but it's still there. And he, he puts it like this, C.S. Lewis. He said um, he realized that he would hobble for the rest of his life because of the experience of losing his wife. And he says, I'm learning to get about on crutches, uh, but I shall never be a biped again. Someone w- w- walks alone on two feet. If you have been through any measure of grief in your life, whether it's a loved one, whether you've been through a painful divorce, whether you've seen someone die painfully from a, from a sickness that, is, uh, that has devastated their body, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. And my encouragement to you this morning is that there is one that burns away the fog in our lives through the power of his resurrection, and his name is Jesus. For us who are Christians, there's a hope that we can face this kind of grief There's a hope that the pain will recede and end and the tears will dry. For everyone who believes by faith, there's this hope. And I love what N.T. Wright says. He's another wonderful writer. He says, there is one, Jesus, who burns off the fog in the blazing glory of his resurrection. I love that. And my hope, my prayer this morning is if you are, if you, in your heart you have had some kind of grief in your life, that you will know the truth of that for your own life. There is one that burns off the fog in the blazing heat of his resurrection. And so our hope as Christians is founded entirely on the resurrection of Jesus. And um, for some, the biggest obstacle they have in believing in Jesus is the resurrection. And so I thought it would be good just to um, look at this question briefly with you this morning. What, why can we reasonably believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? If everything about heaven is based on his resurrection, how can we reasonably believe that Jesus was raised from the, from the dead in a logical way? Can we in a logical way believe? And I believe there are four powerful reasons why we can believe in the resurrection. And the first is this. Simply, the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. If no, the, the reality is for all their huffing and puffing, the Romans could not produce a body. No one could produce a body. And any claims of resurrection would have been quashed instantly if someone would just produce the body. And there's only one reasonable explanation why they couldn't produce a body. Either someone removed the body, which means the disciples lied and the woman lied, or mistaken, or God raised Jesus from the dead. And so if you read anything in terms of skeptics that uh, have uh, uh, written about this, most of them try and come up with an explanation why the body wasn't there. Or somebody hid it, somebody 
but it was never produced. So people often try and go round and round in circles rather than facing the fact that perhaps Jesus did was raised from the dead by the power of God, right? First reason. This is what uh, Mark's gospel says. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Because if you know, if you go and do any historical research, you will see it was a massive stone that not one person or a dozen people could have moved. It required a whole small group of people to move the stone. It was that big. And they looked up and they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a, in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek of Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, but he is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going on before you to Galilee, and you will see him just as he told you. And they went out, fleeing from the tomb and trembling with astonishment, which had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is a supernatural thing that happens that they encounter. First reason, no one could produce the body. Second reasonable reason, people claimed that they encountered Jesus after he died. Uh, there's a brief summary in 1, in 1 Corinthians 15 that you can read for yourself in verse 4, where Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared first to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some of them have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's the second reasonable claim. Christians don't just say the tomb was empty. They also say that Jesus appeared to a large number of witnesses. Over 500 people claimed to have seen him after he died. Second reasonable, uh, after he was raised. Second reasonable uh, explanation. Third, there's no evidence that these people had any opportunity to fabricate their story, to make it up. Why do I say that? Well, I would gi I issue with a, uh, give you a, a, a little assignment. Go home after this meeting and read the accounts of the, the resurrection story in the four Gospels. And try and put the pieces together, and you will see when you try and find out what happened to whom and in what order it happened, you will see that the stories are slightly different. It does not record a story with a perfect sequence of events, but rather it's like a scrapbook that you put on your wall, and when you look at all the pieces of information, you can get a very good idea of what the story is. And that strongly suggests that those that testified to Jesus' resurrection did not discuss their stories with each other. In fact, if you go to a legal, if you're involved in a trial, one of the things that lawyers do is make sure that the evidence that is presented in the court is not exactly the same from every single person, because if it is exactly the same, then they presume that the witnesses have conferred with one another to make their story exactly the same. This is, if you study law, this is one of the things that lawyers look out for. There's collusion, and normally there's collusion to cover up a story or to hide some information. 
There's no evidence in the story of the Gospels as they are recorded that anybody included, uh, colluded with anybody else to confirm the same story. And that is one of the major things that even uh, historians would agree and say that the absence of collusion amongst the storytellers in the Gospel points to its, cred its credibility and the power of the claims of the Gospel that the resurrection of Jesus is true. Three. Fourth is this. The people that were first to witness the empty tomb were women. Now, this might seem very strange to us today. We, we might not be able to understand this in our cultural context, but in those days, in Jewish culture, women were rarely called on to testify in court. In fact, it was just not the cultural practice. The early believers didn't take any notice of that. They simply told the story as it happened and as they saw it. And the women were the first to see the resurrection and the first to testify. And if they were fabricating the story, if they were making it up and they wanted people to believe it, they would have never have gone with their main witnesses being ladies, and in particular, their main witness being Mary Magdalene, who was a prostitute. <laughs> that just not, doesn't make any sense if you're trying to prove something reasonably to a, a court with witnesses. Do you get what I'm saying? It just was exactly the wrong way to go about trying to make up a story if it was not true. But if it was true, what did it matter? Because they had, they had um, seen it with their very own eyes. Four reasonable th uh, reasons why we can believe that the resurrection story is perfectly true. Then Going on from that, I'd just like to look at this way that people try and handle grief and death. For some, they, are, they don't find comfort in, um, who are not Christians, try and find comfort in other ways. And many try and, not many, but some, try to um, connect with people after death through mediums. That's why people have seances. They, they have this kind of thing of, well, if I can make contact with this person and know that they are right, then suddenly that proves that life after death is real, and I get comfort from this thing that I've, I've, I've managed to make contact through a medium. And they believe that that proves that there's life after death. Well, the Bible clearly says that kind of practice is wrong, and I don't have time right now to say why, but the Bible does clearly say we're not to practice those kind of things. But I also want to say that that kind of fuzzy idea of somehow that proves that there's life after death is not what the Bible says when it talks about resurrection and resurrection power. It's completely different. And I hope that will become clear in the next five minutes. And there are others that believe that we have a soul and that our soul is immortal like God and it lives forever. Uh, and depending on how you've heard this taught before, you will see that people say there are two parts to us as humans, uh, or three, your body, your soul, and your spirit, depending on how you see it. And the nub of this kind of teaching is that the body might disintegrate and go to dust and die, but the soul lives forever. There's an eternal part of us that lives forever. I've said this before. That's why people say, I need to find my soul mate. If I find my soul mate, it's all going to be all right in eternity one day because we will be eternal souls together. Well, I want to say quite kindly, this is not what the Bible teaches about life after death. This is a Greek idea. 
that the body is evil and, and disintegrates to dust and the soul lives forever. It's not a Christian idea at all. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says not only the soul, but the body, the physical body will be resurrected from the dead. And it's most clearly seen for the first time in the Old Testament in Ezekiel. You all know the, sto the story of the Valley of Dry Bones, don't you? And they prophesy over the dry bones. Ezekiel prophesies, and these dry bones are brought together, and sinews come upon them, and flesh comes upon them, and then God sends the spirit of His, uh, of, uh, his life into and the, the bodies, and they begin to dance, they begin to walk, they begin to run. And the vi this vision that Ezekiel has formed the basis of Jewish belief in the resurrection of the body at the end of all history. And what I'm trying to say to you is that the Belief in life after death and immortality of the soul are not the same as resurrection of the body. And the Bible teaches resurrection of the body. And that needs to inform everything that we believe about heaven. And uh, to believe in the resurrection is to therefore believe that you will have a new body for heaven. Remember I said this last time? Heaven with a big H. Remember? Do you remember that? Heaven with a big H, at the end of all time. Heaven with a small H is when we die, before the end, it's like we go to this most wonderful resort that you've ever dreamed of. And you know the best is still coming, but you're in like this holding place. That's when we go. That's what Jesus said to the thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. That's what he was talking about. This place where we go, where we experience God's presence in a wonderful way, and we know we're in His presence, but it's not the end. The end comes at the end of all time when God rolls up all of history and He says, the end is now, and the dead in Christ, we, um, we sang it this morning, the trumpet will blow, the dead in Christ will ra be raised, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and our bodies will be resurrected in a glorified form, and we will enjoy fellowship with God on the new heaven and the new earth. This is what the Bible teaches. If you have heard this for the first time today, I hope you haven't, but if you have heard it for the first time, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what Christians believe. We will have a glorified, transformed body, but we will have bodies. That's why I said to you, I hope my body, my glorified body, will have the most beautiful head of hair that you've ever seen. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, belief in the resurrection is belief in life after life after death. What we affirm even more is that it will be an embodied life. Heaven is a place that is designed for those kinds of bodies. And so in summary, we don't just believe in life after death as Christians. We don't believe just merely in the immortality of the soul. We believe in a new embodied existence after death that comes when we are raised from the dead. And so every time we pray together and we affirm our belief in heaven or we say one of the creeds together or whatever it is, and we say that Jesus was raised from the dead, we are not just saying that Jesus lives, is living eternally as some kind of disembodied soul in heaven with his Father. No, we are saying that we are announcing that Jesus took in flesh and blood a new body that was made for the future kingdom of God when he was resurrected from the dead, and that needs to transform everything in terms of how we view heaven in eternity. So what I'm saying to you, and Helen says sometimes I repeat myself too many times, but I'm trying to just make it very clear. 
Jesus' body was the first resurrected body, and his body is the one his, that he now enjoys is like the one you and I are going to enjoy at the end of all time. So here's the vital question. If that is true, then what was Jesus' body like? Here are four little things that the Bible teaches quite clearly. And this gives us a clue to what our bodies are going to be like when we are raised from the dead. Jesus' body and our body in heaven will be an ordinary physical body, not some kind of glowing, luminescent body that exudes kind of ambient light. You know, like when you see those movies with aliens and they glow. That's not how our body is going to be like, all right? Why did I say that? Well, simply because on the road to Emmaus, what happens when the disciples hear uh, Jesus talking to them? They, they kind of recognize him, but they don't recognize him. And um, he seems quite ordinary. He does, there's nothing weird about his body. It's a, it's a resurrected body, but there's nothing weird about it. They don't think, well, this is very strange. This person is glowing, is kind of hovering. Uh, no, no, there's none of that. It's just an ordinary person. But somehow they knew it was Jesus, but they, so there was something different about him. And it will be the same with us. We will have a resurrected body, a physical body. Secondly, our bodies in heaven will need food. Yes, good. Come on now. And you'll be able to eat as much as you like and you won't put on weight. Come on now. This should be a glorious thing for all of us. Tasting every good thing that God has for this heavenly banquet. We're going to have, it says, that's why I say that. Because simply, after Jesus was raised from the dead... His body needed food. Do you remember? He ate with people after he was resurrected. And so our heavenly bodies, our resurrected bodies, will need food as well. Thirdly, it will be a body that has marks on it from this life. This is what I mean. There's some incredible verses in Luke's gospel when Jesus says, what does he say? Look at my hands, look at my feet, and he bears on his body the scars of his life. And I don't know how this is going to work, but I do know this, that we will carry with us something of the scars of this life in heaven, but they won't hurt. They won't, won't be a painful reminder. When we see them, there will be no anxiety, no pain in our hearts. They will just simply be worshipped towards God. But we will carry with us something of the suffering, the marks of suffering that we've had in this life. But our bodies will be glorified. Fourthly, our bodies in heaven, our resurrected bodies, will have some kind of power that we might now call supernatural. And having said we don't glow like um, aliens, I have to say that sometimes the Bible does talk about when Moses met face to face with God, what does it say? It says there was a radiance from his face that the people could not look on. There's something about the glory of God that we will exude from our bodies because we will be in God's presence and in his glory and we'll have a glorified body. So there will be something of that, I believe. And why do I say it's supernatural? Well, uh, when you read the stories of, of Jesus uh, after his resurrection, he appeared in rooms without opening the doors. <laughs> so, so how did he do that? Well, his glorified body must have been able to just move through the door or uh, move through the wall and materialize. It's, it was supernatural. That's what it says. It says he appeared and he disappeared just like that. There's something of that in our, in our glorified body. And uh, I loved. Tim didn't know what I was preaching, but he read this this morning in the worship, 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the, Paul writes and says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. 
What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, then there's also a spiritual body. Paul just affirms everything that I've been trying to paint for you this morning in this message. So to conclude, everything about life and death and heaven depends on that momentous thing that happened 2,000 years ago where Jesus was raised by God his Father from the dead. And uh, if you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to your kids, or if you have read it, I always remember this wonderful, wonderful picture of uh, the stone table being cracked open. Do you remember that? The stone table is cracked open, and Aslan is no longer on the table. And that's a picture of the defeat of death, that death has met its match, that death has no more sting, that death has no more power. And there's one figure... Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of Man, that got up and has walked out of the chilly fog of death that's sometimes in grief that surrounds us, and He has burnt it away. And because He has done that, we can stand with confidence, confronting those things that come at us, even though they are painful, knowing that it's not the end, knowing that the good uh, thing that God has for us is still lying ahead of us, that the chilly fog of grief is being burned in the radiance of the resurrection of Jesus. I trust that will encourage you this morning. Wherever you are in your life, whatever you, ha whatever you have experienced, all of us know grief to some way in our lives. And my encouragement to you this morning is lift up your eyes to the one who's been resurrected from the dead. Jesus is our eternal glory our eternal security, and in Him, He has made the way that heaven is secure for you and for me and for all who believe by faith. May that comfort you this morning. May that give you strength that you'd know His power deep within that enables you to stand whatever life throws at you. Amen.